Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. My name is Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode, and I'm pleased to be bringing you today's episode because it's with Terry Edwards, Terry Edwards of the Higsons, of Gallon Drunk, the charming man that has played on records from artists such as Nick Cave, PJ Harvey, Hot Chip, Spiritualized. The list goes on and on and on, and we're going to chat about that today. Um, he was an absolute gentleman, and you're going to really enjoy this episode. And um, before we get on with it, let me just say um, thanks to 76 for producing this. Thanks to everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, also, if you do enjoy this, um, please have a look in the back catalogue because uh, we do talk about uh, some people that uh, Terry has worked with. Terry works regularly with um, Bedders from Madness. So there's an episode with Bedders uh, in the archives. Go and have a look. And Irena Mancini, uh, go and have a listen to that, chat with her. It's a wonderful uh, episode, that one. Um, just go and have an explore in the back catalogue. And if um, you're up to speed and you still want more, then um, I do have a Patreon page. Each week I put up a uh, standalone episode over there, as well as what you get for free um, each week here. Um, aside from that, if you still need your podcast recommendations, why not go and check out the podcast uh, magazine that I do with Scroobius Pip and Adam Richardson. It's called Pod Bible. Uh, it's a print magazine that goes out inside the Sunday Times. As well as that, it's a digital magazine. Uh, you can find out all about that at uh, podbiblemag.com. Uh, we also have a podcast for that as well. So why not go and check that out and listen to um, Pip, Adam, or myself chatting to all your favourite podcasters about their podcast and the podcast they enjoy listening to. That's, um, find out all about that at podbiblemag.com. And you can find out everything you need to know about this podcast at offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. Right, I think that's all the plug-in stuff done, so let's get on with um, why you're here. And that's uh, to listen to this episode. So it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce today's episode, which is Off The Beat and Track Podcast with Terry Edwards. Sorry to chip in, but I've got another announcement. We have another sponsor. Anyone can play guitar podcast. If you're in a band or an upcoming singer-songwriter, or you just want a, a little look behind the scenes of how the music business works, this podcast is for you. They interview big-name guests every week, and the lads go in on topics such as how festivals are put together, the role of today's record companies, the importance of touring, marketing, songwriting, the list goes on. And wait till you hear who they've had on. The Killers, 
Jimmy Eat World, editors, Frank Turner, Shed Seven, as well as loads of record company execs, festival organisers and radio DJs, and loads more. Visit acpgmusic.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. So anyone can play guitar podcast. Go and check it out. It's off the beat and track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Okay, we're recording. We are at uh, the WeWork building in uh, trendy East London, and uh, and sitting opposite me today is. Um, a very well-dressed uh, <laughs> Terry Edwards. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I sort of feel like I know you because, um, I mean, I should say we've never met before, but you're good friends with, with my best mate and uh, and you're also long-time sort of collaborator and, and worked with, with Bedders, Indeed, uh, former yeah. guest uh, on here. And, uh, and I'm sure as we talk about the work that you've done over the years, there's probably going to be paths where you've crossed into the uh oh you've already uh, Irena Mancini as well you said you'd, yeah, uh, yeah. you'd you'd work with as well so I'm sure there's more because aside from knowing uh what so, you know some of the work that you've done through through coming to see you um pre you know in, in the past when I googled some stuff about you it's insane the <laughs> amount of people that you've worked with. You must have the greatest phone book in music, Terry. Uh, it's not too bad, actually. It does get, uh, get quite thick, the old, the old phone book. Um, but I think a lot of it's to do with keeping breathing. And um, <laughs> the longer you keep doing this stuff, the more people you tend to meet yeah. and, uh, and play with. And uh, I find it really encouraging that I'm still um, being asked to... But by strangers, for even last week, there were two two emails through to go and play on somebody's records of people I hadn't met and stuff because they like what I do and yeah. and that sort of really yeah it's life affirming you know you think I did make the right decision all those years ago yeah. it didn't seem like it when I had to work at Camden Market instead but um, <laughs> yeah no it's great and I'm, I'm uh, delighted it's great to meet fans and um, all that stuff so I'm saying like a gushing old twice aren't I <laughs> uh, but no it's really nice when you sort of because uh, doing what I do you know I'm not in the forefront or in the sure. spotlight a lot of the time yeah and uh frankly i can pick my saxophone up and go go home on the bus and no one knows who the hell i am and why should they you know um and but it's so nice when somebody does sort of say oh i really like the, what you do and uh yeah it's great gratifying there, there, there must be something humble amongst you and your friends because when i had bedders on here uh he said he walked home from madstock yeah. <laughs> How can you walk home from Mazda when you've just played on that stage to all of them adoring fans? Took a stroll home. Probably helped you clear your head. That's exactly why he done it. Yeah. <laughs> um, track one, Terry, the mm. song with the greatest ever intro. <laughs> I've been cheeky here. Okay. I, I do appreciate it. I have been cheeky here. But it, it's a nice sort of way to um, fire off a conversation, in a sense. It's the first single that I was ever on, and I was quite young. I was 20, I think, when this came out, was the uh, I Don't Want to Live with Monkeys by the Hicksons. And it does start with a ludicrous introduction, which has got... Uh, you can hear us laughing through it, because we all had the giggles by the time we got to do this bit. And just a, a bunch of almost fully-grown men going, Hoo-ha! <laughs> exactly, you're laughing straight, straight yeah. um, it's a It's an ear-catching yeah. kick-off, isn't it? But there are, there are lots of songs of great intros yeah. and everything, but... Um, that one, I just thought it'd be a nice way to to start start the chat, really. Yeah, and 
For those that um, may not be aware of the, of the Higsons, mm. uh, could you just give us a little bit of, sort of backstory? Yeah, um, I went to I went to university to the University of East Anglia in Norwich, largely to get into a band. But I did manage to get my degree in music at the same time. But I did largely go to get into a band, and it just so happened that there was a really interesting intake of people there. Not just people into music, but um, Gurinder Chadruff, the film director, was our, our year as well. You know, so, yeah. so there were lots of just for some reason the gods smiled upon this bunch of interesting yeah. people. And uh, Charlie Higson was the lead singer of the band, known as Switch then. Yeah. Uh, the drummer. This is, is Charlie Higson, later known for the Fast, fast show, show and, and all and that. Such, yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, Simon Charterton, who drums with uh, the band that I play with, Bedders, in the Near Jazz Experience at the mm-hmm. NJE, he'd just. Um, he took a, a year between school and university, as did I, because I didn't really want to go. I just wanted to be a pop star. <clears throat> oh, well, best laid plans and all that. But Simon <laughs> had just been on the road with Alex Harvey for a year at the age of 18. He was drumming with Alex Harvey, and, just, and he was clearly the best drummer I'd ever played with, you know, at yeah. that age when we were both 19. And um, then Colin, the bass player, who was uh, a mature student, a few years older than us, but he was in on the... He was from Liverpool, so he was in on the, that early Liverpool scene and he played in an early incarnation of Wah Heat with Pete Wiley. Right. And so in a new Teardrop Explodes and yeah. all, that, all that sort of thing. So, and, of yeah. course, when, when you're 19 and you know someone who's 25, that's a wealth of, of difference, course. isn't it? You know, nowadays it's next to nothing for me hitting uh, the big 6-0 this year, you know. <laughs> but, but at the time, for, for me, that was just like, these are all the best musicians I've ever played. But then people were really... That post-punk thing of... 79 into 80, where the dust had settled, people had started growing their hair out a little bit and everything. Um, But you were still interested in making new music, and that's where the Higsons came from. It was a punk-funk band. Um, uh, Someone said it was the UK's answer to the Talking Heads, uh, whatever the question was in the first place. (laughs) I mean, um, I'll I'll take that. That's a a, a great... Um, And we were, so we denied it at the time, but of course that's (laughs) what we were listening to that. But actually, all all the five members of the band, we all listened to slightly different things. And and we were just like five cats in a bag when it came to making the music, but we all had that that post-punk energy and the, you know, the the, the follies of youth and... uh, and, and, and the experience of youth. I think we just, we, yeah. you know, and we made some interesting records. We were a really good live band. We never quite got there. We didn't, um, maybe we weren't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the people you're at school with who are bloody brilliant at football, and when they actually get their yeah. chance to play for West Ham, don't quite make it. <laughs> I think the Higgs were a bit like that. Well, my introduction to the, to the Higsons came in a very sort of roundabouts way. So maybe you could sort of shed a little bit of light onto the connection there. But um, I had a bootleg cassette of R.E.M. at the borderline (laughs) playing a uh, secret gig under the name Bingo Handjob. Indeed, yeah. And they played a track called Listening to the Higsons. Yeah. Could you shed any light on... I can shed a lot of light on that. It was written by Robin Hitchcock. It was written by... And I believe and Robin was there as well. Yeah, so I think yeah. it was actually... Um, yeah, Robin and, and R.E.M. sort of went back a few years and that was uh, that was one of yeah Robin's songs, which I think was uh, initially... Uh, the opening line is Lucifer in Frognal listening to the Higsons. It's about the devil in a flat... in a uh, bedsit. And he's got this really crackly radio he's listening to, and all he can hear is the Higsons coming up on John Peel. 
Really? <laughs> Wonderful. Something like that. I'm sure. Am I right in saying there's a lyric in there that the Higsons come from Norwich and they eat a lot of porridge? Uh, there is indeed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, originally, I think the studio one didn't have the porridge thing in it, but the live version did. But yeah. It was originally just the Higsons come from Norwich, but I prefer East Grinstead. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because I think that's where the Scientologists are based, isn't it? East Grinstead. Is it? <laughs> but I think that's possibly um, coincidental. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, that's the, that's the connection. And since then, I have played that song with Robin Hitchcock a few times, and um, and once with a couple of REM members as well. So that's, oh really? Yeah, Robin's got. Uh, Robin used to have a band called the um, the Venus Three, which had. Peter Buck and Mike Mills with him. I think you'd was have it, to look this up. Hindu love gods as well. Uh, pass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not my specialist subject. Um, but yeah, it was, and it was hilarious to have had a song written about your band, even yeah. if it was slightly uh, "Why are the Higsons being played in my band?" Not um, kind of uh, undercurrent to it. But yeah, yeah the idea. That, uh, I think a lot of people came upon that um, through through the REM version, and also I met. Um, a couple of musicians when I was touring in the States with Robin Hitchcock once upon a time and um, Gillian Welsh and Dave Rawlings and uh, we did Higsons as a, an encore in this thing and I was introduced to them afterwards as this is Terry from the Higsons they said oh we always thought the Higsons were just a noisy family that lived next door to you <laughs> and they because they didn't know that the band existed and, yeah. and of course that makes a lot of sense you yeah know, of course and I yeah. kind of like that you know <laughs> yeah that's quite magical I like that um, track two the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you mm. um, well again I've cheated slightly okay. because I can't remember exactly but I do actually my, my father was really um, liked a, a lot of opera funnily enough um, but he didn't really subject us to too much of it but there's a, a, there's a wonderful opera by Offenbach called The Tales of Hoffman, and I remember that being quite touching and not really knowing why. You know that thing when you're a kid and there's something emotional? Yeah. It's also a bit like, um, I, I do not speak Portuguese, but you start playing Portuguese fado songs and you're in buckets of tears because it's yeah. really sad because the subject matter is sad, even though you yeah. can't understand a single word that's being said. But I think yeah. emotion takes... It doesn't have to be lyrics, it doesn't have to be... Um, verbally based for you to feel that emotion at all so that kind of I do remember being affected by that but I think in terms of of um, pop music the the thing that I put George Harrison down for All Things Must Pass because Mm. I I just think those songs like Isn't It a Pity all those sort of beautifully peaceful hippie-ish sentiments and I was just talking to Simon Charleston uh, earlier saying that I was coming in to um, do this and he said he remembered when um uh, My Sweet Lord came out and mm-hmm. we would have been 11, 12 or so when that came out, mm-hmm. maybe 11 and he said he remembered feeling hugely, you know, tearfully emotional with that song but not knowing why, you know, so we both had that George Harrison thing Could you could yeah. you equate an emotion to, to what you felt when you heard that? Um, actually quite, it was quite exhilarating this idea that there was a, there was a powerful thing in everybody feeling that there are all these horrible things going on in the world and but there's a positive people are generally positive even amongst yeah. really difficult times and we are living through difficult times but then maybe we always live through difficult times and then something comes and hits you round the head like uh, a bereavement or something which has got nothing to do with the politics of the time yeah. which takes you uh, out in this 
other place, which which can be terribly sad. But I think the I think the thing that I felt about the Harrison, a lot of George Harrison's music, is that it's a positive experience, and you can comment on yeah. how crap the world is. But actually, isn't it uplifting that there are other people around who are like-minded yeah, who totally. want it to be better? Uh, he says speaking is a very good atheist, but you know I do think the power yeah. of the, the power of that is good. Absolutely. Yeah. How old would you have been then? Um, oh, sorry, you said didn't you? I would have been yeah. sort of. On, on the cusp of uh, kicking into being a miserable teenager. Mm. <laughs> so whereabouts uh, was you when you was um, becoming a miserable teenager? Where was home? Uh, I was brought up, uh, born, brought up in Hornchurch, Essex. Okay. Which, uh, when I was born, was actually yeah, Essex. It still is postally, and then five years later became part of the London Borough of Havering, as That's London right. spread out like a like pancake mixture goes yeah. across the pan. Um, so uh, yes. Yeah, so, I describe myself as being from the east end of London these days, having lived yeah. in E1 for most of my adult life now. Yeah. Um, so I, I consider myself that, but uh, yeah, I do. I do have to say Essex. Yeah. <laughs> How was growing up in Essex? Um, it's, it's fine. You don't know any different wherever you're growing up, really, mm. do you? I've had a very um, lovely family. Uh, the sort of thing, uh, problems you have with an older brother. <laughs> well, well let's, let's talk about that because having an older brother was was it something that? I mean, was it a musical family? You said about your dad playing opera and that, like. Oh, he, he as a listener, sure, he wasn't a terribly musical man. Um, the musical side of things came from my mum's side. She played the piano, um, and her sister taught me piano as well. Their parents, um, my grandmother, played. Piano and grandfather played the violin and whatever could um, whatever he could lay his hands on because he yeah. he also decided once he'd um, got the bow out he would uh, play a, a saw but it wasn't like the the musical saw that you get made like David yeah. Coulter and uh, yeah. um, Adrian from Tiger Lilies play but uh, it was the saw from his shed just to get try and work Brilliant. out how to get the sounds yeah. out of it and in later years he got a a penny whistle and things like that. He was just interested in in music, but not for a, a living. Yeah. Though both those grandparents played for at dances or whatever, but had their own own jobs. And so records and stuff. Would it, would it be a case of, you know, would, would would your older brother have records? Would you, you know? No, it's hilarious. We don't. We we chalk and cheese. If we weren't related, we'd never have met. I don't think. Really. You know? We like we like different types of music. He does like music, but he, we don't really. Um, cross over very much in mm. the things that we do like um, so I didn't have the uh, the older brother who had the, the cool record collection with the Velvet Underground in yeah. I had to discover that through, for myself through friends and yeah. so on and so forth um, so no it was very much my own peers that I would find music through okay yeah. and so school was school in Hornchurch yeah. yeah okay well let's let's talk about school then so for track three the song reminds you of your time at school Mm. Yeah, uh, I've, I've put the damned and neat, neat, neat. Yeah. So this would be um, this would be later school. This would be when I was sixteen. Yeah. Or so. So okay. not like the. I mean, if you if you like, I guess a lot of the earlier things was um, prime uh, glam rock. Yeah. Person really, you know, and and everyone likes to do that. Talk about the cool stuff, you know. Yeah. How I was always into T Rex and everything. 
I don't think you were 12 then. You were into mud and yeah. sweet, actually, yeah. at the time. That's what, that's the glam rock you yeah. were into. T-Rex oh, tell as you well, what. but, you know, it wasn't top of the tree. Yeah. And nor was Roxy Music. Yeah. You wanted the pop stars with the stupid clothes. I'll tell you why. <laughs> I, 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 I've done this with Alan McGee, and, uh, and he just said, um, sweet. He said, like, you know, when I saw Brian... It was Brian, wasn't it? It was the singer Brian in... Brian Conley, yeah. Yes, it just, just thought he was the greatest pop star ever. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 you know, that... You're not meant to be caught cool at 12, are you? <laughs> no, you know, you're meant to be obsessed with the big, larger-than-life, <laughs> colourful pop stars. Yeah. And, uh, Which you think's cool anyway. Yeah. Of course you're being cool, because that's the coolest Absolutely. thing you could like at the age of 12. So... And Slade. I didn't mention Slade, did oh, I? You know? I, I mean, mean, all these... There's a reason why they sold so many records. They were bloody good. They know? were great. And no one described them better than Noel Gallagher when he said, I think, he, I'll, I'll quote, um, they wrote proper fucking tunes for lads <laughs> but looked like fucking diddy men. That <laughs> 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 couldn't describe Slade any better than that. <laughs> And it was not until, um, so with with hindsight, that I've realised just how good Roy Wood and Wizard mm. were. Because I liked the tunes at the time. Yeah. And I don't know if I necessarily bought them. I mean, there, there was a finite amount of money to own this stuff. Yeah. Whereas now you can stream things a lot easily, mm. easier and find things. But if you had to put your hand in your pocket as a school kid and get your pocket money out and yeah. buy a record, you didn't have quite so many. Yeah. And I don't think I, I might have owned one Wizard tune and some of the others, but... What a curious and wonderful screwed-up band that is. And they were signed yeah. to Harvest, which was EMI's sort yeah. of arch-rock label that Wire were on. Yeah. And um, you can probably fill in the gaps of some of the other people that Harvest from, but, uh, that were on Harvest. But they weren't bands like Wizard, I yeah. can tell you. Yeah, 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 but, of um, But the albums were just like uh, almost prog classics, and the singles were complete opposite, but yeah. they were a big wall of noise. I yeah. mean, I think the... the uh, person who probably influenced Roy Wood most was probably Phil Spector. Mm. And, Definitely. and he played everything. Yeah. You know, but, which I must say I quite appreciate the idea of playing everything yeah, being a multi-instrumentalist myself. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing. Amazing sounds. So, yeah, but uh, as, to get back to the, the song that I chose, actually the damn neat, 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 because that really was a watershed thing. You, years are year zero can go to hell, you know, you can have a foot in either camp, but certainly the damned were one of these things where you suddenly you thought, oh yeah, <laughs> this is fun. And of course they were, they were as much fun with dressing up and everything as, yeah. as the glam rockers. And they went on tour with T-Rex, didn't they, with Mark Boland? I in did not know that. Yeah, there's, yeah, the damned and, and T-Rex, or, or was it Mark Boland? Without T Rex, but in '77 wow. they went on tour together. I mean, hey, that's a good, that's a good <laughs> night out. Yes, but wow, that's a, that's a mishmash, isn't it? Yeah, and amusingly, to bring things full circle there, if you're this kind of a guy, Tony Visconti's produced albums by both of them now because he's just done the recent Damned album. That's right, as well as doing the early T Rex stuff. So, you mentioned post punk earlier mm. and growing the hair out, and we, we spoke glam. So uh, we, we, we're talking straight up punk here mm-hmm. um, so how old would you have been 77 16 right I mean that's prime isn't it absolutely yeah how was that it was great as I say the damned were the, were the band that really made made sense to me they were fantastic uh, I couldn't get to see any of these because not only was I young with of course just pocket money and you'd yeah. have to travel from the outskirts of London in yeah. to do all this. so I never saw any of these bands mm. first time round at that point 
Um, but uh, so you, you'd listen to to the records or whatever you could get hold of, and the damned did it for me. They were faster and more fun and proper. Mm. Um, the Sex Pistols, you would hear the occasional track of and, and everything, and I must admit, I didn't, I didn't really like Anarchy in the UK. I mm. didn't think it was a, a great song, and, I, and the anarchist, antichrist, anarchist rhyme yeah. I always thought was awful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to say that having played with Glenn Matlock, one thing he said to me was, oh, "I always really hated that rhyme <laughs> himself." Just thinking, "Well, there you go. That kind of indicated, yeah. you know, that yeah. even the guy who wrote the music for these things wasn't too." Um, and also, I was chatting um, again with Bedders recently, and one or two other people, about um, The Clash. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dave Cummings, who was the original guitarist in the Higsons, and then went on to play with um, Lloyd Cole in the Commotions and Delamitri. He's a, that's his pedigree of, as a player and everything. And he was saying, live, that they were great, but they weren't great musicians. They were just great live. Yeah. And um, I never saw them live. And I don't think it came over on record as quite how good they could yeah. be. So I do have to say that as the yeah the wide-eyed teenage punk rocker from the outskirts of London, it was the damn that did it for me. So as someone that has lived his whole life in, in Essex, ten minutes from Hornchurch, <laughs> what was 77 and punk like in Essex? It was as polarised as the sun could make it, really, you know, because people believed the papers and the Bill yeah. Grundy incident and all those sorts of things. Yeah. And I remember getting chased across the park um, by uh, this young black lad who was about a year older than me or something and was wanted to do damage to me because a a punk rocker had done damage to his sister. It clearly wasn't me, but it was a punk rocker. Yeah. Really? And then I saw him again six months later. I mean, in absolute fear of this this thing and he was he was absolutely that's why that's when he explained to me why he chased me but um it it, it could be a bit hairy you know yeah. um, would you was you a, a, a full-on punk then was you dressed in it was you living it i was uh, certainly um <laughs> as, as much as you could with your school uniform you sure. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and the spiky hair and uh i can do an advert now for my record store day release can't i There's, of course uh, um it's called Stop Trying to Sell Me Back My Past, and okay. I clearly am because it's a reissue of the EPs that I made of cover versions of the Mary Chain and Miles Davis and The Fall and The Cure one that never came out at the time and a few other bits and pieces. What track's that? Um, Friday I'm In Love, In Between Days and Killing an Arab. Wow. Um, I can come on to... The, the reason for, for chatting about that uh, in this particular thing is that I've used my last school photograph as the front cover... Oh really? And uh, there are safety pins on the tie, and uh, but the really Brilliant. wide lapel on the jacket. You know, yeah. that's what that time was. You know, not everyone had the made. Um, no one had got on the bandwagon to make punk, so-called punk yeah. clothing. Yeah. You just got your stuff DIY. out of wherever. You know, DIY it was yeah. DIY clothing um, with the thin black tie and the and the safety pins and the huge wide collars like you're in the faces or something um but i mean that that was the reality of it then yeah. it wasn't bondage trousers you know yeah. no one no one from hornchurch was going to uh, buy stuff from the malcolm mclaren vivian yeah. westwood sex shop yeah, were they? you know i mean it was a it was very homegrown that kind of thing so did, did you enjoy school yeah i got on fine it was um i found the last year a bit boring um I just wanted to get get out and, and make some music and. You, you it was clear already that you that mm. was where you wanted to 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I was I, as and most um, most kids. I of a certain age, you lived for football and mm-hmm. playing football, and uh, then. Uh, the worst thing that could possibly happen to you when you're about 14 is that you suddenly need to wear glasses. If right. I'd been wearing them since I was five, you, yeah. people would have been used to it. But when you're suddenly really interested in girls and music and being cool, and, and then you realise that you ha- you're a bit short-sighted and you have to wear specs. Yeah. And it was also at that point that I realised I actually wasn't very good at football and uh, you couldn't really head a ball with specs on anyway. Um, and so I, I was already playing instruments. I played instruments for quite a time. And then it just polarised me into... Um, into that hello i've interrupted the podcast again haven't i sorry it won't take a sec all i want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast if we can't play them it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such so if you want to hear the songs just go over to spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side so uh, that, that, that sort of thing like by deciding that you want to pursue a career in music um what was the kind of reaction to that at, at, at school in, in, in Essex in the 70s to someone saying that they want to pursue a career in popular music with your wide lapels in your... <laughs> Here's an absolute classic thing. for you, which is uh, so of its time, it's, it's marvellous. My mum went to the uh, school open day, talked to the careers master then, uh, and said he wants to be a musician. And he looked down and said... Uh, at the reports and he's got a very good spread of O-levels he could be a chartered surveyor and it was it was the 70s encapsulated that you couldn't be a musician you ignored a woman who'd said something to you you know everything <laughs> everything that could be wrong about yeah. this interchange was wrong you know yeah. and um, wherever you are Mr King I became a musician <laughs> brilliant <laughs> wonderful um so, were you in sort of bands at school? Was there? School? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, there was all like cover things. And of course, pre pre um, punk, you know, I started playing the guitar when I was thirteen, so seventy three, seventy four ish. And so we were like like everyone trying to learn "Smoke on the Water," "Stairway to Heaven," whatever. Yeah. All those kinds of things and wondered what on earth was that Jimi Hendrix chap doing and how do you get those noises out of yeah. your guitar? All all that trying to learn all these things and um, there was. Yeah, so I went through several bands. Of course, it's, uh, I don't know if it's the same with you, but, you know, your band could split up after three weeks and then you'd be playing with other people and you'd split yeah. up and, and all you'd be thinking about was, what should I call that? So, what should you call that? So, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then you'd write the name of your band on your on your school books and then you'd be split up three seconds later. And uh, Yeah, so all those kiddie things that you do with bands, yeah. but actually just learning the chops as you go along yeah. and learn trying to... Uh, of course, with much smaller hands than you would have yeah, as you grow into, and so trying to play songs that um, that adults had written yeah. and could play. And uh, but I think that really helped. You know, you just sort of got into mm. working away around your instrument, mainly guitar at that point. Although I already played trumpet and piano before the guitar. Right. Okay. And I didn't start playing the sax till I'd left school. I got one for my 18th birthday. Right. And that's when I started playing the sax because I wanted to. 
I liked Earl Bostick, Earl Bostick and Ian Dewey's sax player, Davy Payne. They were the two sort of influences on me to, to play the saxophone. Yeah. So being a multi-instrumentalist did start at a reasonably early age. Yeah. I blame the parents. My dad had loads of jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so, was you a confident young man? Yeah, I think so. Confidence of, of youth and all that sort of thing. Yes and no. Um, Driven? I wouldn't say so necessarily. I've never been that um, hung up on practice. <laughs> driven <laughs> to, I driven I did, to achieve actually, yeah. a, a career in music. Uh, yeah, but it sounds like it's a career move. I don't know. It wasn't... The only sort of career move that I... Plans that I made were very early on in Higson's days, when I'd been about 20, 21, thinking, I can do this till I'm about 40. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, getting into the back of a transit van and going around to play certainly a young man's game and so uh, yeah when I'm 40 I'll start writing string quartets of course if you're going to be any good at writing string quartets you should start them when you're 16 um, but now I'm uh, yeah hit, hitting uh, hitting the big 6-0 this year and I'm still getting in the back of vans and playing <laughs> pubs and, um, and doing bigger things as well you know but uh, uh, I, uh, yeah all the, the best laid plans and everything can go by the way so who'd have known that you that that you don't sell records anymore, yeah. that you, and who'd, who'd know that we would be talking like this to yeah. for something to go? You, no, no concept of, of yeah. what life's going to be like when yeah. you're forty or twenty years time. Absolutely, or anything. So you might as well just get on with it and do the best you can. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's go go back um, to uh, for track four. I ask you the first song you remember buying from a record shop. Mm, yeah. And I do remember this. It's The Legend of Xanadu by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. Um, and obviously I would have not been earning money to do this at the time, but yeah. my mum gave me the money to go and buy the, the record that I wanted okay. to get. Uh, because we, we'd got a dance set in the house and we were playing records for the first time ever. This was 68-ish, yeah. 68, 68, 69-ish. Yeah. Um, and I loved that song. And uh, I think it's... Um, when you look back on a lot of the so-called heyday of British singles from late 60s, early 70s, there are a lot of novelty records. Mm -hmm. And although that's a good tune, it is a novelty mm -hmm. with the whip-cracking sound on it. And I think that's probably what nothing else... Where does that sound come from? Yeah. It's a bit like watching a Western and yeah. being cracked at the horses and all that sort of thing. And you, and you sort of were trying... You're trying to make sense of life, aren't you, at that really young age and everything. And then going back and listening to it, I'm, I'm not remotely ashamed by, by the single. I think it's greatly good. Yeah. Sing, great, great number one sing. There's trumpets over it and there are things that I'd have heard but not really known yeah. what, what was going on. And, you know, maybe those things sow seeds. Maybe they don't. But yeah, I don't, I don't think there's such a thing as, you know, when you say, you know look back and you still enjoy our record and uh, I don't get the guilty pleasure thing I mm. just think for yeah. me if yeah. something gives you pleasure <laughs> it's it's good yeah. you know if it's and pleasurable it's pleasurable if you're guilty you're guilty exactly <laughs> yeah we're going out we're going out um so you know growing up you know through maybe a little bit sort of after that when you was you know going on them them sort of trips into the record shops. I presume the record shops were in Hornchurch? Yeah, this particular one that I got that from wasn't very far from where I lived, and it was actually an electrical store because the, uh, what they would have would be the top ten, yeah. possibly. I don't know if they'd even have the top 20. Maybe yeah. they would. Um, and, but at the same time, they would sell you a plug yeah. or a load of wire or all these other things. That you had no idea what these things were, but it was part of the electric shop. 
but that that wasn't that rare then, was it? No. Record shops were, were sort of constantly sort of split with other sort of outlets and stuff. I mean, I, I guess you know, so many people have, have when they've done this podcast have said they bought their first record from Woolworths, mm. uh, which was obviously sold everything, but. Yeah. And a mutual friend, um, I won't say his, uh, his real name, um, but uh, a, a mutual friend, I take a little bit of credit in sort of pushing him into <laughs> to buying records because the local toy shop that was shutting down in between where we both lived mm-hmm. was half a toy shop and half a record shop. Right. And so they decided when they shut down to sell off all their records for a quid. So I was like, come on, let's get you down there. <laughs> it's buddies, buddies, buddies. And... Uh, and yeah, and uh, and, it, and it was. I remember there was you know, several sort of places around, around where I, you know we was living in Essex that would be like an electrical store mm. and and would have you know a rack of records at the back and and, and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think that also that um, there were department stores everywhere, like your, your Debenhams or whatever. But people forget that Boots was a department store yeah. up to a point. I yeah. bought my first acoustic guitar. From Boots in Romford. Really? Yeah. I remember selling had, records in Boots. Yeah, and they just had this little thing, and of course it was cheap. It was, yeah. <laughs> it was very cheap, and just thought, well, yes, I'll yeah. get that, and I'll learn how to play the guitar. This would be seventy three, seventy four ish. Right. But they, and the same with um, W. H. Smith, mm-hmm. because that um, that had a big record department. I bought the Rolling Stones' Satanic Majesties from from Smiths. I seem my, to remember. My, my uh, first ever job was uh, running the. Music department in a W. H. Smiths. Well, well. <laughs> Were you the record buyer? <laughs> okay. Track five, Terry. Mm-hmm. Let's go clubbing. So I want to know the song that soundtrack you're using in in, uh, in Clubland. Um, again, sort of clubbing. Are, are you expecting me to be of a certain age to go clubbing? No. Because the record I wrote down was actually the song, one of the songs that you'd dance to when you went to mates' parties at school, yep. rather than actually go to a club. No. It, um, this was the one that... Um, this is where Bowie was doing um, his plastic soul years or whatever, and the, the funky version of John I'm Only Dancing, mm. not, not the earlier mm-hmm. hit from the 70s, but the one that came out when he had the, um, the, the front... The picture on the front cover was him being uh, Thomas Newton in The Man Who Fell to Earth. That's so right, it was that yeah. period. It was 76 as it came mm-hmm. out, though it was recorded a couple of years earlier, I think. Um, so it's that sort of, that funkier version of John I'm Only Dancing. And I remember that being, I think because it was slightly different, it wasn't really the big sort of hit. It was kind of a little bit underground, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the, all the Bowie fans, would, you'd really go over that alongside yeah. young Americans and all those those sort of that yeah. period of, of his things and I, and I associate that with that sort of youthful effervescence of partying yeah. partying rather than clubbing yeah. if, excuse me um, if you want to be a bit more literal about it when I would go to the Camden Palace for the various nights in the early eight, sort of 82, 83 ish the one that I remember being played a lot was um, Blue Monday of course that was that mm. was a huge that was a huge clubbing record yeah um, but I actually preferred, I preferred some of the uh, the funky things with real drum kits. Yeah, yeah. Big fan of Bowie. Yes and no. I wasn't like the. Um, uh, he wasn't the biggest thing in my in my youth, but he was all around. Mm. So, and there were certain bit, there were certain holes in record collections. I think that you find certainly people of a certain generation where, um, 
you actually didn't there's no real reason to have bought certain albums because you heard them all the bloody time anywhere yeah. else um, you won't find a Joy Division album in my collection not because I necessarily like or dislike them but everywhere you went yeah. you could hear it so there was actually no need to shell yeah. your money out on it you could buy yeah. you could buy something else that you wanted mm. you could have as well as that because that yeah. was already in your head so um I, I sort of caught up a little bit more with some of the Bowie stuff a little bit later. And also I think that um, he was as, as fallible as the Beatles <laughs> in that there isn't a perfect Bowie album, or is there maybe Station to Station? Well, the thing, there was mm. always a track that you would kind of... <laughs> that one's not for me or something and the same as you with a lot of different artists I think and that's the, the humanity of the records <laughs> and not everyone will agree on which that duff track might be yeah. necessarily which is again a good thing yeah. you know um, so I, I I think I liked the um, uh, you know you, you'd be aware of the singles and then once you're uh, once you'd heard Aladdin Sane or something like that you'd go oh yeah hang on a minute yeah maybe that's a perfect Bowie album mm. maybe not <laughs> Does the perfect album exist? Um, I'm sure that anyone who's made the perfect album would always like to go back and do something on it again. Exactly. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer. Have you have you got any albums that you listen to that you just think faultless? There's there's not a duffer on it, or have they all got an octopus's garden on it? <laughs> <laughs> I think most of them have, you know, and including myself here. When you go, ouch! I wish I hadn't done that. But, um, Interesting question. Uh, a faultless album. Hopefully not. Hopefully there isn't a faultless album yeah. out there. I always say my favourite record is um, John Zorn's Naked City. I don't play it every day of the week. Mm. But every time I do sort of go back to it, it's one of those things of sheer joy. And you think, God, I'd forgotten how good this is. Yeah. It's a lovely feeling, that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So I'm, you... I'm, 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 on, this, on the flip side of the coin, I played the first three Elvis Costello albums once I discovered them to absolute death I was listening I was working in a record shop in Elm Park Coneville Records and I used to put them on a lot a lot a lot I can't really listen to this year's model anymore really yeah because it's I've just done it to death exhausted it yeah and it's not to say it's a bad record or anything yeah. but it's just I have exhausted those brain cells yeah I've I've got several records like that. Mm -hmm. I think through being a name and shame. A, um, I think through being a DJ. Oh, of course. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I've had to play at lots of records that I, when I first heard, thought were amazing. Yeah. And, and I've probably played every night, every, every week for 27 years. And one mm. of those is Blue Monday. Right, and yeah. I adore that record mm. and Nord are one of my favourite bands. Mm. But it comes on, and every now and again I hear it and I'll go. I remember why I think this is one of the greatest yeah. things. But then sometimes it comes to me, oh, bloody hell, Blue Monday again. Yeah. And there she goes by the Lars. Right, yeah. Um, but they're, they're, they're a band that everybody, you know, they they were a band that come out around the same time as the, the Roses and the Mondays, which was my kind of punk, was my 16 years sure, of age. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of them bands that everybody said that the Lars were this band that, you know, they're, they're just the best thing. And I, I just didn't get it. I just hmm. never got it. But I, I get the joy that is the single, There She Goes. Yeah, yeah. It's pop and it's great. Mm. But I played it every night for bloody years. And yeah. it's like, I don't want to hear that anymore. I'm sure. I mean, I don't play it anymore. But I, I think it'd be one of them ones that I reckon if I if it come on the radio now, I'd think, 
God, it's a fucking great record, Dad. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. <clears throat> okay. Um, Favourite song from Essex, Home County. Yeah. Um, now, I actually steered away from the obvious on this one. Who's the obvious? Ian Jury. Oh, right, OK. Ian Jury and the Blockheads. Um, and I'm particularly fond of Laughter, which I know is kind of the Macbeth album for a lot of people in the band, apart from anything else. Um, which I think it's a great album, and I think there's a... Yeah, there's... there's that those, those Ian during the Blockheads albums are all brilliant. But I did get... I had Baxter on last week. Oh, did you? Mm. Yeah. Oh, right. had a good chat about... Uh, yeah. Uh. Um, but what I've chosen is a song that I just got obsessed with at one point, and it's, um, it's, it's wrong in, in the way that it's not actually Wilco's Doctor Feel Good, but it's mm. um, Chippy Mayo is playing guitar on it. But mm. Down at the Doctors is one of my all-time favourites. And um, I did play it on repeat. And thankfully, I haven't played it so much that I don't like it anymore. <laughs> but I just think it is a perfect record. Yeah. If we, the, just everything about it uh, appeals to me. Yeah. Um, and if you're to dissect it, if you put it under the microscope or anything, in a sense, there's nothing to it. Is it? It's a three, four chord tune, and um, it, it rocks away and it boogies away. Yeah. And maybe that's why. Maybe that's why it's so good. You know, you just don't have to think about it. Guitar sounds on, on it's brilliant. The harmonica on it is wonderful, and uh, and the piano solo is uh, something else, isn't it? Yeah. Eight bars of piano. No piano on the whole record. <laughs> I love it. Was was that a scene that you 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 embraced as well? Because we've we've obviously sort of spoke about punk and, and post-punk and glam, and obviously also there was that period in between that, which was, what well, I guess, the press name pub rock. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and a lot of that come from Essex with yeah. the likes of Feel Goods and Hot Rods and Curzel Flyers as well? Yes, Curzel Flyers yeah. from South End Curzel. Yeah. yeah. Um, the drummer, Will Birch, is a well-respected writer, isn't he, these days? He's just finished the Nick Lowe autobiography. He oh, really? A, I think he did a book on... Um, he's done a book on the injury. Did he do a John Peel one as well? Maybe not. I can't remember. But, yeah, he's a yeah, he's published author, Will. Um, but, yeah, there was certainly a, a scene going on there around the Canvey Island yeah. in the South End area and various other bits of it. Yeah. It's a big con- county, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was aware of it a little bit at the time, and there were um, kids at my school, my year or maybe a year older, who'd been to see them. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Stuff which I didn't get to yeah. see at the time, but they absolutely enthralled by it. And yeah. I can see why having seen the footage and listened to the records later, or I heard the records at the time. Right, and Cell Block Number 9, they made that their own, didn't they? The Feel Goods and... And aside from, you know, the, the track you've chose not having Wilco on it, um, I'm, I'm not an, a, an expert on the Feel Goods by any means, but whenever you see that early footage, Lee just looks sinister, doesn't he? <laughs> and, like... It's the sort of bloke you wouldn't bump into into a pub. <laughs> you wouldn't want to bump into in a pub, sorry. And and you've just when you saw Wilco moving across that stage with that guitar, it just looked incendiary. It yeah. looked just. They looked violent in a way that bands didn't look violent yeah. at, at that time. You know, there, yeah. were the, there was the big light shows. There was a, and and a lot of um, concentration on being great musicians. I think I think there was this period where rock music tried to justify itself as as music to to say highbrow yeah. art or whatever just to say we really are as, as good as orchestras that, yeah. that sort of aspect yeah. of things definitely which um you know it's fine if you there's not i don't i'm not i don't have an opinion on that either mm. way um but then you just there was this thing which i think punk did take by the horns was um there are these people up on stage playing their stuff as if their life absolutely depends on it, and if you get in the way of them while they're doing this, yeah. damage will be done. Yeah. You know, and I and I think Jury had that as well. Definitely. With the um, the Kilwins again, who I didn't see, but there is there is this um, essence of of a band actually being in the same room as you, as opposed to being in a stadium. Yeah. And that that thing where you can see their eyes and you can see yeah. the intent. For real. You know, mm. which was. Really amazing. There's some fabulous footage of um, of Dr. Filger. There's some, uh, I think it's a European TV show they're on or something. And I think that Lee and Wilco are speeding off their brains, and and Lee's pulling at his collar on it all the time as if he wants to take his tie off because he's really hot and he's really doesn't know what to do with himself. Yeah. But he realizes then he takes his hand away from his collar because he really shouldn't take his tie off because he's got his he's doing his stuff. And then he puts his hand back up to his neck and he and you just there's this intensity about them. Yeah, yeah, that um, it's just again one of those life affirming things. And you look at that and you go, yeah, that's what I want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and you did, and 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 so let's talk about some of the the, the work that you've done then, Terry. So, mm. post Higson's, where did that take you? Um, about pretty swiftly to to playing with Mark Bedford, uh, but it was a bit a year after the Higson's. I tried playing with a couple of other bands, and I was uh, frankly the instruments that I was playing, so the punk funk thing had had sort of not really taken off hugely and certainly wasn't apart from pig bag wasn't a terribly commercial venture did you play on that no i didn't no i played on the remake you, that's Re- right reach up pig yeah. bag the the one by the um perfecto all stars that was it yeah i'm on that um the 
And 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 horns went a little bit out of favour, you know, because they'd been the scar, scar had had horns on, and there was dexies and these things, and and everything was moving to mechanical instruments. So would this have been sort of mid this to late eighties when it this is eighties. We split up early eighty six, and then um, there was that mid eighties bit where uh, I know Steve Norman, I like him a lot, but at the time. If you went into a studio with a saxophone, they're going, we don't want, you to, sound, we don't want to sound like Spandau Ballet. Yeah. You know, and um, they said, well, okay, fair enough, but there, there are other ways of playing the saxophone. Yeah. Steve can play it differently to, yeah. <laughs> to what Spandau Ballet sounds like, you know, so you just think, okay. But there were some bands that, where it did work, and, um, and a lot of the sort of more soulful shoegazing indie bands at the time, before shoegaze became a thing, things like the June Brides or whatever, and Yeah Jazz, there was a band called Yeah Jazz who I played with for a while at that who were from the Midlands, who uh, I don't know if the uh, if the the cards had fallen slightly differently, could have filled the shoes of the Smiths. They were doing that kind of yeah. that kind of music, mm-hmm. those kinds of, of songs, um, without the Johnny Marr aspect, of course. Um, so I was just playing in whatever little bits and pieces I could do, and I worked at Rough Trade Distribution at that point, and occasionally Camden Market, whatever I could do to Should help do session make. stuff alongside this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a band called Meow who were on the factory. Mm-hmm. I played on one, of, I played on a Peel session for them and track on a record of theirs. So odds and sods, you know. Um, and then I had some instrumental music that I wanted to do with double bass, and I didn't know any double bass players. And Dave Cummings, the guitarist I mentioned earlier, um, he was a friend of of Bedders, and he said, "Well, Mark's not doing anything because Madness had split up around the same time mm-hmm. as, as the Hig did, you know, coincidentally." And uh, I think everyone was taking stock a little bit, you know. Sure. <laughs> um, and and he was interested in doing something. And um, I had his phone number for two weeks before I had the courage to phone it up. And um, we found. Why was that? Why were you nervous? Um, Hello, famous bass player. You don't really know me. Friend of a friend. I have no money whatsoever. Would you like to come and play on some tunes? You know, I was skint. You know, Quite I couldn't. The offer. I couldn't really. Um, you know, it wasn't as if I could offer anything other than are you interested in playing some tunes yeah and um and and he was and we hit it off straight away we got the same with we had similarities that um you know we're both the youngest members of our respective bands which does put you in a certain position you mentioned earlier um we're both a little bit at sea having had the rug pulled out from what we'd put our heart into for our nascent years for being there and then and then we wanted to do music which we hadn't done with our previous bands either yeah and we and we shared a love of some sort of 50s instrumental type music which is what became butterfield eight yeah uh we got some downtime in the studio just to try a few things out and i sent a cassette to cassettes to three record companies one of which was go discs and uh andy who was uh, at go discs was a huge madness fan and i think it could have been Better's coughing on it, and he'd have been interested. But um, thankfully, it was much better than that, and uh, we did a, an album for Codiscs. So that that was around eighty-seven, eighty-eight-ish, and we it was just a one-off that record. And then we we tried to keep the band going as Butterfield Eight, but nothing really happened with that. And we just kept in touch and doing bits of music and things. Then Madness got back together. Oh no! Oh, there was the Scar All Stars, of course which was Mark, Lee and Chrissy Boy from Madness joined me and some other mates to play some things at the Dublin Castle and this was a few months before the Madstock 
okay. thing had happened. So it was the first time, I think, that those three had been in a room playing music for yeah. a little while. Um, so there have always been little connections with, with Madness over the years. Um, but yeah, that was what, that was the sort of the immediate post post Higgs thing that I that I did, and then I just started playing. Uh, the more more times you say yes to people and put yourself on records and do things and come that come up and 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 again working at Camden Market, the guy who was managing Gun and Drunk worked at a record store there, Nick Brown, mm-hmm. and his charges Gun and Drunk were doing something and wanted some saxophone and he, um, and uh, funnily enough the drummer from Gun and Drunk at the time. Max Deshane had been at university same time as me. Didn't know he was a drummer. He didn't play yeah. any music there at that time. Yeah. He had a band back home, but he didn't like to talk about it. Um, so he was playing. So there were these little connections being made all the time. And then I started playing on Gun and Drunk Records, joining the band live. And then Jason from Spiritualized was interested. And John Coxon, who played with Spiritualized as well, said, can you come and play on a, a remix that Jason's doing for a band? And, it, and he'd used some of these... Um, baritone sax sessions that I did a couple of takes on a track called The Individual, named after my tattoo which is on Ladies and Gentlemen We're Floating in Space so this is where wow. all of these things start sort of ramping up that you, the more times you sort of do something and then you get to know somebody somewhere, and this isn't through being a relentless networker who goes around putting your face about all the time, all you do is do your job that's all I've ever done yeah. do my job Meet, you know, you might meet somebody, you might not. So there are plenty of other sessions that I did at the time that came to absolutely nothing, except they made me a better player. I hope. Yeah. So that's always what I. That's I think where I'm. That's why you're talking to me now. Sure. <laughs> sure. It's because I've uh, I've got all these things under my belt now, and um, and yeah, that that's it. Just sort of snowballs, really. And so you've just found that kind of post gallon drunk, your reputation as as just help the phone to consistently ring and touch wood touch wood and uh, <laughs> keep you playing yeah how have you found the the, the you know the industry in you know and, and the changes in it uh, over the last let's say 25 30 years um i'm sure it's the same as everyone would say that the the internet's been a thing um i would say also that i don't know if uh, i think people the ages we were talking about earlier of, of getting into pop music, um, people are just as interested in pop music now as they ever were, but I don't think it's as important to own things anymore. Um, so you listen, and the way that younger people listen to to music is different to the way that um, I would obsess about it, probably. And I also think um, men and women listen to different, listen to music differently, or, or appreciate it differently. I'm a, uh, you know, I think boys hoard music. You know, you like a record by the Small Faces, you buy everything that Steve Marriott's ever done. Um, uh, a woman hears a, a record by the Small Faces and likes that record. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, this is being very blanket. But I've noticed this a lot in Friends and sort of, and you see boys have their record collections in A to Z, you know, and all the all these sorts I've of things. I've got a record and, collection in A to Z in my sh- in my sort of music shed type thing, the end of my garden, and. If I drive past a boot sale or a charity shop or a record shop, I go in. I'm generally told, 
Why do you need another record? You've got loads. <laughs> doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's true, but it doesn't work like that. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, in answer to your question, yeah, I, I, I can't really shed any more light on the way that, on it than, uh, yes, lots have changed. And I think it's the way that people listen to, and the, what the actual product is, you know, CDs replaced vinyl for a while. Everyone says how vinyl sales are, you know, going up so so much more. Um, they're nowhere near what they were. Yeah. You know. But do you think that could be a, a? It's only when you said something that people don't necessarily want a product. Mm. Do you think the kind of vinyl thing is that element that people do re, re, are happy to pay for it and to have, you know, yeah, I think and to so. have that. That sort of something tangible to look at, and yeah, I think that's. The, I mean, I've I'm a convert to Spotify in recent um, in recent years. Uh, funnily enough, because of using the hire cycles in London. Oh really? Because there's no way that I would ever want to own a bike. I don't want to have anything to do with replacing punctured tyres and all that yeah. sort of thing. I'm not going to cycle it every day or whatever. But it's very handy for me to get to and from here and there every now and then. And I'm very happy to pay me 90 quid for the year, whatever it is, so that I can pick up a bike. And it suddenly dawned on me, you don't have to buy every single record that you need to refer to. Because as a session musician, there are people who might say, oh, you know that um, Amsterdam by the Beach Boys? Uh, I'd like something that sounds like the, uh, the trumpets on track three. Well, in the past, I'd have to go out and buy the record. Yeah. And, and listen to it and do that. Yeah. And I've built up a huge reference library of music like yeah. that at home. I don't have the room or the energy for yeah. these kinds of things anymore. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records. I think, actually, now I can find that track on Spotify, I can refer to it, I can do the job that I need to do, and I don't need to own that anymore. Yeah. And so I, I see Spotify as being my, my library, my yeah. the place, place where I can borrow things from, in the same way I borrow a bicycle to get here to talk to you today. If you <laughs> was to... Put a new album out. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. Put a new album out. How much thought, focus, and love would you put into the album artwork, knowing that it might only be something that people might glance at on Spotify and not not <laughs> holding their hands? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If I put a physical release out, I too put the same amount of thought into it because. Um, because the person who wants the actual tangible thing will will appreciate it. Will want, I want yeah. it to look good, and yeah. and also the credits of that. That's the the problem with Spotify is you can't. If you really want to know who played the bass on that track or something, um, you can't find that out unless yeah. you go to Discogs. You know, yeah. so you so you always keep a couple of windows open on that computer, yeah. don't you, to find everything out. And that, I think that's the other thing that was so magical about buying a record that you hadn't heard yet you'd be looking at the cover on the bus on the way home and be trying to glean information from yeah. it you know well bloody good luck if it was led zep 4 because there wasn't very much on there <laughs> but um but if it's somewhere else you go oh yeah yeah i'm pretty sure that person played the guitar on the such and such album that i've got sure you know and um and you you sort of work out where you stand from all those all those things um I think it's very important to have credits on albums because um, that's 
where you find my name the most. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think it, it, it's good. And then you, you do sort of follow things through and find out more. As you probably did looking me up for this talk to say, did you really do that? <laughs> Are you the, on the, such the, There was so many that I... Oh, so I didn't know you'd worked with. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know that you'd worked with Nick Cave. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you work on uh, with, with Nick Cave on? I played a couple of things on a couple of things for the Murder Ballads album. Wow! So I'm on uh, Lovely Creatures on, yeah. the, on the album, and then a track very annoyingly didn't get a credit on it. But then neither did Blix of Bargelt because they screwed up at the um, record company. Uh, I'm on the ballad of Robert Moore and Betty Coltrane, which is the B-side of the Kylie album, yeah, single. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think, I'm on that single, but nobody knows because they haven't got my name on it. So I did a couple of them, and there's a thing that we did with um, a, a couple of members of Gal and Drunker for the soundtrack of a film called Mojo, mm-hmm. and that's called The Big Hurt, which I think was only used on the credits of the film, but it is on the on the soundtrack of the album. So, yeah, I've done... Three things with Nick, I think. And so did that kind of collaboration around that time lead to the work with Polly Harvey? or was No, that it was early. Polly was earlier. Oh, was, right. Um, Gun and Junk, when we had um, From the Heart of Town out as an album, we toured with PJ Harvey, oh, 93, right. UK, Europe and America. And then I played um, on The River, On Is This Desire, in 97-ish with Polly. And I'd been in the frame to do more stuff over the years but it wasn't until the last record the Hope Six Demolition project that it came to fruition Yeah, that we did the album and then the huge tour and all those all those things and Polly funnily enough she uh, again it goes yeah, the, the Venn diagram does get a bit three four dimensional um, I love it join the dots <laughs> I, I, love, I love stuff like but this I was, uh, the, the Hicksons were signed to Two Tone for a couple of singles so um, Jerry Dam has produced the first single of those two and I'd kept in touch on and off with Jerry, and then when he started doing his spatial, a.k.a. the Big Sun Ra mm-hmm. orchestra of 25 people, and I played baritone sax and guitar with that. Oh, really? And Polly saw, it on, saw us on Later with Jules Holland. That's right. Absolutely loved it. Came to see the band live a couple of times, and just said the next album's going to have a lot of horns on it. And, and she saw Kenrick Rowe playing drums with Jerry, said no, I won't want him and I want such and such you know it's like she'd picked all these things yeah. out and in a sense you'd, you'd look at it and go that's pretty disparate How, how's that going to how's Alan Johannes who's done some amazing things but you know with bands that you wouldn't imagine would equate with what yeah, we yeah, yeah, yeah. and the two Italian guys uh, Alessandro and Enrico how would they work in this thing and she put together this ten piece band and of course it works absolutely brilliantly but no one else would imagine it or see that yeah. She, she actually got a band of soloists together. Yeah. Everyone was a band leader in their own right, in a sense, you know. Yeah. And actually, everyone came this thing. And uh, if you want to... I like the idea that it's very similar to what Duke Ellington would do. He just chose a band of people that he liked what they did, and he just knew that they would sound good together. Yeah. You know, and uh, um, so yeah. that's quite interesting. But no, the, um, the, the connection with Polly goes back to 93. Wow. Okay, well, it's the last track, mm. and you, uh, well, hopefully it's on, on Spotify, because people can go and listen to it right now if it is. I think it is. Um, <laughs> so, for track seven, Terry, um, if you can give us a track that people may not know that you, uh, you would recommend they go and check out. Yes, this is a song, a tune called The Phantom, and uh, it's by Duke Pearson. 
Did you do your homework? Did you ever listen to it? I didn't. You didn't? I didn't okay. listen to that track. I'd not, I'd not heard of it. I think I'd seen the guy's name because he was on a lot of Blue Note records. And um, I was just on a long-haul flight with my headphones on and flicking through all the, the albums and things ahead and there was this, that title was up there and I thought, oh, I'll have a listen to that. And uh, I just put it on repeat for about six or eight times and it's a ten-minute gin. And um, I was just fell in love with it. It's, um, I don't know how to... It's, it's simple, but it's groovy. It lopes along beautifully. And then I found out more about... The jazz? It's, ja- it's jazz-ish, yes. No, it's a ja- he's a jazz player, yeah. But it's quite um, almost voodoo-like. Oh, wow. You know, but it's, it's fairly slow, slowish tempo. So it grooves along. Mm. Then the vibes come in and the flute comes in. Then it changes to the other chord. There are two chords in it and they go along for a minute at a time. And then yeah. they cha- Every time it changes again, you just go, ah. Oh. It's just that it's the most satisfying record. Um, and I would thoroughly recommend it. And uh, he's quite an interesting chap. He had a lot of drug problems, as a lot of the, the jazzers from that period did, that, you know, heroin was the drug of choice, or, or we have no choice, mm-hmm. we have to take heroin. <laughs> yeah. um, so he had a lot of problems, but he did um, solve them. He was he got the nickname Duke, I think, either because he idolised Duke Ellington or people saw something in him that was like sure. like him. But he was um, brought back into the fold at, at Blue Note as an arranger rather than a player at some point after various drug problems. But he's got quite a long career. There's quite a lot of interesting stuff that goes on. Uh, it, it's worth checking out. I think quite a few of his things are on Spotify and other other streaming uh, places <laughs> are available. Are available. <laughs> um, but I would uh, I'd highly recommend that that particular tune. Um, I'm an evangelist for it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so. What are you up to uh, these days, then, Terry? What's uh, what's happening? Are you still doing the, the regular shows with Mark? At, um... We are doing the regular shows, but not at the Indo because it closed just before Easter last year, unfortunately, oh, right. with various, um, I believe, landlord and rent-related problems, and the landlord is still holding out for somebody to pay an arm and a leg to reopen the premises. So, um, allegedly, uh, <laughs> so we have now started playing at um, Chats Palace in Homerton, uh, in Hackney, uh, second Wednesday of the month, starting in March this year. Um, but we, we're going to play a couple of things on Record Store Day down on the south coast because our drummer Simon lives in St Leonard, so we play around that neck of the woods sometimes. Um, we're going. We last year we put out an album which um, Adrian Sherwood did the remixes on, and he's agreed to do another couple of tracks for us. So that was for vinyl specifically for Record Store Day. We're going to have another couple of tracks. I think that that sold out straight away so it's been unavailable and we didn't put it up on any streaming services or online at all so we're actually going to give that a proper CD release in June oh, with some new tracks so we're going to be working on that I'm working with a Swiss singer called Erika Stuckey who I've done quite a few things with in the past who isn't known over in the UK at all but we play a lot of German speaking territories mm-hmm. although she sings in English um, with Paul Cudderford, who's a wonderful guitarist. Um, so I've got a few festivals and bits and pieces with Erica. NJE and myself as a solo artist going to um, Finnmark, which is in the northern part of uh, northeastern part of Norway and Finland. Um, 
up in the Arctic Circle, got a couple of things there coming up in March and April. Um, uh, yeah, NJE stuff as per usual, the RSD release of my back catalogue with the Cure and Fall and so on and so forth, a nice double album there. Um, what else is happening? Yeah, I've got to do the laundry when I get in. Yeah. <laughs> so where, is, there a, is there a place that you'd, you'd say if you want to find out about all of this? There is thenje.co.uk. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's, that's probably your first port of call for the NJE. For myself, I need to revamp my website, so don't bother going there. It's a couple of years out of date. Okay. Um, but uh, stuff comes up on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Terry Edwards Esquire or that, you'll find me well if you're, if you're happy then I'll tag you in it when this comes out so people can go and uh, go and find out more lovely Terry thank you so much my great pleasure there you go that was Terry Edwards what an absolute gent um, as touched upon at the beginning um, we've got lots of mutual friends but I've never met and um, and yeah it was uh, everyone told me that Terry was um a really lovely guy, and uh, and they won't lie him. Um, had a smashing time recording that. Um, hopefully, uh, I will see you all back next week. And as I mentioned at the beginning, if this is your first time listening and you enjoyed that and uh, you want to check out a few other episodes, why not check out the ones that we mentioned on this, whether that be Betters from Madness or um, Urena Mancini. Go and um, give them a listen. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back next week. See you later. Bye-bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.